Okay, so we've been working our way through James, just started a few weeks ago. Today we come to James 1, 9 through 11. And this is a passage which I consider to be one of the most helpful and most underappreciated passages in the whole Bible. Um, And it shows just what the great advantage is of going through the book of James. But before we get to our passage this week, I want to bring us back to where we were last week. And uh, because this passage follows on from what was talked about last week in a pretty clear way. So uh, let's read together James 1 verses 5 to 8, which is not our passage for today. So don't put the verses up here yet because we're not reading that yet. Okay, but this is what we read last week. James 1, 5 to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, without, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So in that passage that we looked at last week, James is telling us two very contrasting things. He's telling us that God is very gracious and generous to give to us without finding fault. But he's also telling us that we shouldn't expect anything from him if we ask in the wrong way, if we have doubting or are double-minded. So both of these messages are delivered by James with a lot of punch in them. And uh, even though they're sort of opposite each other. Now they're not contradictory. It's just that he's giving two very different messages to two very different groups of people. And that's often the way it is with God. Jesus Jesus tenderly comforts the little broken person. But boy, when it comes to the proud Pharisee, he blows him out of the water, doesn't he? Paul draws our attention to this very contrast in Romans 11.22. Behold then, he says, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen away. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. So again, he's talking about the kindness and severity of God, but to two different groups of people. So different audiences need different messages. Or to put it another way, in his word, God has given us a medicine cabinet full of various medicines for various kinds of ailments. Imagine two people praying. One of them is discouraged and confused and hurting in his struggle and he needs to hear about God's generous willingness to help him and give wisdom to his children in their time of need. Then there's another person who's praying. This person has no true love for God or trust in God. He is praying because he's trying to use God to get what he wants. He needs not to hear how generous 
God is to help. He needs to hear that God won't give anything to a person like him when he's asking that way, just for himself. And one thing I've noticed over the years of ministry is that we often take the wrong medicine. We listen to the wrong message. Preach on God's anger, and who really hears it? It's the people who need to hear about his mercy that end up hearing the message about his anger, as if it's directed toward them. And sometimes you preach on God's generosity and kindness, and the people who need to hear about his anger seem to use it to fuel their self-justification. The ones who need to hear that the Lord gives generously without finding fault, often instead hear that they ought not to expect anything from the Lord because of their doubt and double-mindedness. While the ones who need to hear that they shouldn't expect anything from the Lord because they don't have any real faith and are double-minded, hear instead that the Lord is eager to give them generously without finding fault. And, surprise, I think it is Satan who is behind this trying to get us to listen to the wrong message. This is what he tried to do with Jesus. Remember when he took him to the pinnacle of the temple? And he quoted Psalm 91 to Jesus about how God's angels would protect him if he threw himself off. And Jesus responds by quoting a different passage. Deuteronomy 6.16 You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, when someone is tempted to jump off a high place, he doesn't need to hear the message that God protects his children. He needs to hear the message that God commands us not to test him. But Satan loves to get us listening to the wrong message. He loves to use God's law, for instance, to accuse those who are prone to guilt feelings. And then he loves to use the assurances of the Bible to whisper false hope to those prone to self-righteousness and smug self-assurance. The point is, that we need to feed our minds the right things at the right times and to be on guard against the devil who loves to feed the very opposite of what we need. Well, now that we've talked about last week, we'll see that this same theme continues into verses 9 through 11. So let's read that passage. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the middle of his pursuits. So this morning um, as we were leaving for church, I looked at the kitchen counter, and uh, today is the 15th of May. Well, my wife's birthday was May 4th, and I gave her a dozen roses of various colors on May 4th, and they're still sitting on the kitchen counter. 
but they don't quite look as well as good as they did on May 4th when I gave them to her. In fact, they look pretty pathetic. And that's exactly what this verse is talking about. The way that the health and life and beauty of a flower is so, it looks so alive and so, it sparkles with beauty. And then a few days later, it looks pretty pathetic. So that's, um, that's the illustration he gives of the rich man who needs to boast in his humiliation. Now, at first, this verse sounds very strange. One of the most confusing reasons for this, I believe, is because we're told, to, we're given this verse with the word glory or boast. Let the rich man, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And the rich man boast in his humiliation or glory in his humiliation. Well, the point here is that the lowly brother ought to dwell upon his exaltation, celebrate his richness. And the rich person should immerse himself in his poverty, remind himself of his poverty. The meaning is clear because of the illustration that I just referred to about the flower that follows the second half of this. Let the rich man boast in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So the rich man boasting in his humiliation means that the rich person should remember that his earthly life is soon going to pass away like the flowers. So the rich person should not glory in his riches because riches aren't going to last. And the person who puts his hope in riches will lose everything in the end. Rather, the rich person ought to focus on his poverty, on his vulnerability, on his undeservedness, on his brokenness, on his hopelessness without Christ, in order to counteract his tendency to put his hope in riches. Likewise, poor brothers and sisters shouldn't dwell on their poverty. They shouldn't focus on what they don't have but on what they do have. They should glory in their riches, on how much they're loved by Christ, on how much God has given them, on all the eternal riches that they've been promised. The reality is, some people feel confident and secure and on top of the world. Revelation 3.17 gives us a good glimpse of this, where it quotes people in the church of Laodicea as saying, I am rich, I have prospered, and there is nothing that I need. That's the rich person glorying in his riches, not realizing his poverty. In fact, it goes on to say, yet you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Those people are desperate People like that are desperate for a reminder of their tininess and their nothingness. They need to be reminded of their mortality. They need to be reminded of the uncertainty and the fragility of their earthly prosperity. When you're feeling rich 
and successful. How helpful it is to glory in your humiliation, in your vulnerability. And that's what James is saying here. On the other hand, other people have no need to be reminded that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That reality is thrust before them every moment of every day. They live with the feeling that that's who they are. And it's easy for them to just focus on their pitifulness. But instead, they need to focus on their richness in Christ. That they are loved by him. That they're created by him for a good reason. That they have an almighty savior who walks through life with them. And that they have a glorious destiny that awaits them in heaven. You see, the natural thing for a human being is for the rich person to glory in his riches. And the poor to wallow in his poverty. But what is comfortable and what comes naturally is not what is wise. What is wise is for the rich man to focus on his poverty and the poor man to focus on his riches. The Bible tells us of a rich person who did what was natural. He gloried in his riches instead of in his poverty. It's the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. Jesus said the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's the natural thing for a person to do in that situation. But Jesus goes on to say that God said to this man, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one, he concludes, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. People like this really stink. That's what Psalm 49.20 tells us. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding. So here are people who are full of themselves, full of their possessions and their place and their position. Men in his pomp, yet without understanding. They don't get it. They don't get that this comes from God. They don't get how vulnerable it is. They don't get that it's not going to last. They are like beasts that perish. Now, how many of you have ever been on a walk and were suddenly rudely interrupted by the stench of death? Some beast somewhere near where you're walking has died and its body is decomposing. And all of a sudden, a pleasant stroll in the country turns into a foul experience, right? How many of you have had that experience before? Yes. Well, that's what he's talking about here. That's what it's like when a man who has much 
and yet doesn't get it from God's perspective. Ultimately, he is like a rotting beast in the nostrils of God. It's like God has given him so much, and yet instead of understanding that it comes from him, instead of appreciating, it just fills him with pride. That stinks to God. And the Bible also gives us some examples of poor people who gloried in their poverty instead of in their riches. What about the disciples on the boat when the terrible storm came upon them? They were gripped with fear, remember? And even though they came to Jesus, what did they do? Don't you care that we're perishing? And then there's the servant of Elisha, the prophet. Remember that morning when he woke up and went out of the house and he saw that the whole city was surrounded by an enemy army? And he, in fear, ran to the prophet and he said, what are we going to do? And then the Lord opened his eyes to see. The Lord, Elijah, Elisha the prophet first answered, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are against us. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the servant to see that the enemy army was itself surrounded by a far greater army of the Lord. So there was no reason to fear. He saw his poverty very clearly and was scared to death until he opened his eyes, or God opened his eyes, to his riches. Now for me, I've always had a struggle with pride. It's amazing, my heart, how quickly and easily it can turn to feeling good about itself, to patting myself on the back. I get caught up in my success even when there's very little success to be caught up in. And I go wild when I begin to receive a lot of praise, which fortunately doesn't happen much. But it affects me. I foolishly start to believe it. I need to remind myself of my poverty. But as I get older, I sense there's a shift in things. More and more I have to combat discouragement as I get closer to the end. The fact is, in life, every person has pleasant, encouraging experiences as well as discouraging setbacks. And it's easy to react to either of these in the wrong way, in a way that's harmful and unhealthy. But we're complicated. And sometimes we actually go back and forth between boasting and hating ourselves. And James is here telling us how to steer ourselves between the rocks of pride and the rocks of despair. If you find yourself veering towards despair, compensate, he says, by glorying in your high position. And if you find yourself veering toward pride, compensate by glorying in your humiliation. The fact is, all of us are rich and all of us are poor. Let's think about the fact that all of us are rich. We all have things that we're good at. And even though sometimes you might forget that, your good friends could remind you, there are things that you're good at. 
All of us have things we possess. All of us have connections and resources that we can draw from. All of us have histories that involve some successes and some failures as well. For instance, you know, in a large family like ours, our children are rich in siblings. But they're often poor in one-on-one -on -one time with mom and dad. This week I noticed a license plate. Mom of Cece. And I thought, you know, I bet you that Cece is rich in parental attention and poor in siblings. If you have five kids, you don't make a license plate that says mom of Cece, right? All of us are rich in Christ, even if we're poor. Jesus said this in Matthew, in Mark 10, 29 30. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So we are rich. We have been given a hundred times as much as we've given up in, in just the resources of being a part of the family of God. And that's just in this life. And then after this life, we begin a, give an eternal life. So we are rich, but we're also poor. And all of us have ways that we're poor. All of us have ugly things about us. All of us have things we're missing. All of us have things we're bad at. For all of us, there are things which other people have that we don't have. All of us are poor in our sin. We are all unworthy sinners who deserve nothing but God's judgment, ultimately. All of us have failures. All of us are foolish and broken and needy and weak. The key is, whichever you're experiencing in the now either the poverty or the riches, you need to compensate by glorying in the other. So what about you? Do you sometimes get overwhelmed by your sinfulness or your brokenness or your failure? Or do you find your pride welling up in your heart and along with self-confidence and earthly security? Well, we need to listen to ourselves less and speak to ourselves more. Like how the psalmist speaks to himself in Psalm 42, 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He is a poor man who is glorying in his riches. After the, Jesus had stilled the storm, he rebuked his disciples for their lack of faith. He wanted them, in the midst of the storm, to remember that the all-powerful Savior was with them in the boat and loved them. But none of them remembered. And here his brother, James, this 
letter was written, we believe, by Jesus' brother James. And he here gives us a method to manage the wrong reactions that we're all prone to. The Bible also gives us examples of the right kind. It tells us of rich men and women who gloried in their poverty, like Zacchaeus after he met Jesus. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Luke 19. And it tells us of poor men and women who gloried in their riches, like Ruth, which we, we just talked about earlier this year. Like David, when he was being hunted by Saul and wrote so many wonderful psalms. Like the apostles, when they were imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Like Paul and Silas, singing hymns in the Philippian jail. And then there's the Beatitudes that we recited this morning. Where Jesus teaches the poor to glory in their riches. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. And then he turns and he warns the rich about their coming poverty. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you're going to be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for that's the way that they treated the false prophets. And the Bible gives us at least one example, I'm sure there are many more, but at least one shining, supreme example of a rich man who gloried in his riches, but then God taught him a big lesson and he learned to glory in his poverty. And of course I'm thinking about Nebuchadnezzar. Remember when he was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon? And he looking out from, from the roof at, the, at his, uh, the great city that he had built. And it says, and he answered. It's like he looked out upon the, the city and he answered. Oh, who did he answer? Well, he answered the vision that he was seeing. He answered what he was seeing. And what did he say? Is not this great Babylon, which I have built with my own mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? But then after God taught him a very painful and humiliating lesson by turning, taking away his sanity for seven years and then restored his kingdom and his riches to him, this is a, the different tune that Nebuchadnezzar was singing. I bless the Most High and praise and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and, according, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor 
the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride and he should know those who walk in pride he is able to humble so what a beautiful story of the very thing that James says in James 1 9 and 10 here now a few more things first of all you can't manage your heart unless you are first able to assess your heart. And so every time we go to prayer, we need to humbly examine our souls, discerning what's going on in me. How's my pride? How's my gratitude? How's my trust? How's my joy? How's my hope? You need to give yourself a checkup. How's my love for the Lord? How's my love for my fellow man? We can use these question, kinds of questions to diagnose our hearts, to see what's missing, to see where we're off. And then, in addition to taking the time to assess the state of our heart, we need to be familiar with the, the medicines that God has given to us in his word which we need at different times. But if prayer for us is merely something we want to check off our to-do list, we're not going to do any of this kind of thing, I'm afraid. We're just going to get the task accomplished and so we can say, I did my time of prayer. But we need to be changed. We need to meet Jesus where we are right now in our hearts right where our present struggle is. And that generally is not going to happen if our real goal is to comfort ourselves by telling ourselves that we prayed. The great thing is that no matter how it is that we're feeling at the moment, the cross is our best medicine. If we're feeling strong and competent, the cross reminds us of our weakness and need. And if we're, the, the cross teaches us that we are not good enough or right enough to be approved. Only in Christ, only on account of his work and his righteousness can we stand approved before God. And if we're feeling weak and insecure, the cross is our great reminder that in all of our sinfulness and brokenness, we are so loved that God gave us his son. If we fix our eyes upon the cross, it's hard to be either proud or hopeless and self-loathing. It's the medicine which works both ways. It helps the poor glory in their riches and it helps the rich glory in their poverty. And now I just want to tack on one more thing. A little case study. And I'm going to speak here especially about to and about those in our church who are of my general age and generation. We have seen our parents age and many of them die and it wasn't pretty. 
And we see signs already in ourselves of deterioration. We know that our time is coming. And it is like a dark cloud on the horizon, knowing that there's a devastating storm coming and there's no way to escape from it. It's like you're drifting down a river and you know that there's severe rapids ahead, rapids which no one can survive. And even when people, a person like this, have times of feeling strong or on top of things, all it takes is one look in the mirror to get a good glimpse of our poverty. And we know that we won't feel well and be fully competent forever. And we have worries. Do we have enough to retire? You know, is, is, uh, is our financial situation enough to prevent our children from have to, having to take care of us and, and provide for us in old age? And then, you know, maybe we feel, start feeling good about it and then suddenly inflation starts to rise fast. And suddenly the stock market crashes down and the economy teeters and we're insecure and there's all these looming things that we just don't ever want to deal with the possibility of cancer the possibility of dementia the possibility of living in a nursing home the possibility of having someone have to change your diapers the, have, the possibility of having, having to walk with a walker the possibility of people having to feed you. And as I said earlier, the possibility of being a burden to your kids. Every time a new symptom manifests itself in your body, you're prone to think, is this the beginning of the end? Old people often say to each other, aging is not for wimps. And when we're overwhelmed with worries, we need to remember that God is going to continue to be with us to the very end. That our suffering will be brief, however long it is. And that God will supply our needs just as he always has. But the greatest riches we need to be glorying in is the fact that death is but a portal to a much better life. A much better world. Jesus says to the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2.9, I know your poverty, but you are rich. That's a really wonderful verse. And it is a great comfort as we drift toward the inevitable rapids of old age. Jesus knows our poverty. He knows what we're going through. He knows what's ahead. And he wants us to remember in it that we are rich. That we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. 
And even though we might be called to walk, we will be called to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need not fear any evil. For the good shepherd is with us. Even to our old age and gray hairs, he will sustain us. He made us and he brought us into this world. And in the end, he will also carry us home to his side in paradise. That is, let the poor man glory in his riches. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you so much for your word and for a wonderful way it helps us. Please help us to take hold of these things and make use of them and and put them into practice in our lives that we might be people who are not easily daunted by the difficulties and the discouragements of the world around us in our lives, but that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And Lord, help us also not to be easily affected by the things that might bring us pride, but Lord, to constantly humble ourselves before you and remember where we came from and remember how we are unworthy, but you are worthy. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.